0: Oh, that was wonderful. Thank you all for leading us, Marcus and Tiffany, so well leading us today in worship. My heart is stirred. We're pleased today, I've asked them to stay by just a second here, we have some special guests with us today. Uh, You may have felt like you had to work hard to get here today and came a long ways to do it, but there's a, a family here that's joining us today from South Africa. Now, they got connected with us some years ago, about 10 years ago, through Hope Sabbath School. Uh, back in the days of Hope Sabbath School, they sent in a request for some materials and got and that got Patty connected with them. And Patty started sending them DVDs of our worship services over time and, and uh, has been over there to visit them several times. Now, they don't live in Johannesburg or Cape Town or one of the big cities there. They live out in the bush. They live in the Kalahari. They live... Uh, Oh, about a nine iron away from, that's a golf reference in case you wonder what that was, from uh, from Botswana. So they're way out there in the middle where they see animals all the time that we only see in pictures and would scare us. But uh, they're visiting with us. They came to see Aunt Patty. It's Ross and Karin and Willem. And they're here and they just wanted to hang over and hear a little bit of the worship music here uh, from the bridge. But they already had to suffer through the sermon once, so we're going to let them Sneak out there don't do what they did unless you were here at first. All right. Good to see you guys. Glad you're with us All right. Yeah, indeed All right, let's pray Father in heaven, we thank you for your love your goodness your kindness your spirit the way you've been here and blessed us in these songs the thrill in our hearts with the baptism Lord, we pray you pour out your spirit, especially on her today. And uh, Lord, guide us as we open your word, because this psalm is a psalm of teaching. Help us to learn. In Jesus' name, amen. So we've come to the last week of our opening series for the year, Banner Year. And I appreciate Pastor Bernie who came up with this idea and, and uh, did a large part in picking out the different texts. It's been an interesting series. And I've really appreciated uh, what Pastor Bernie's done with it, particularly last Sabbath. Were you here to hear his message last Sabbath? If you were not, you need to go online and listen to that because it's a powerful message that can help you in the most important relationship in your life. Well, the second most, the one with God's the most, but, but with each other, with particularly your spouse or the one you're dating or whatever it is. Very good message. I hope you heard it. Or will go do so. Anyway, an interesting series, kind of based on an interesting premise. Different verses in the Bible where the word banner appears. And not surprisingly, it's taken us to some texts that we probably wouldn't even look at normally. I don't know if you noticed this, but for this whole series, we've been completely in the Old Testament this whole time. We don't usually do that. But yet, despite the fact that we have been in places we don't normally look, still... We have found God in those places and we have heard the voice of Jesus to us in those places. Now, one lesson I hope you take from this is the importance of having a regular, thorough Bible reading plan. Now, I'll admit I was a resistor to the idea of a daily Bible reading plan for a lot of years. I said, well, I don't need something arbitrary to tell me what to do. I can just open my Bible and read it. But you know What happens? you say you're going to do that, but when you're not following something disciplined and regimented, it's easy to stop. And I want to encourage you, if you were to take one actionable step out of this series that could really help you to make each year a banner year, that would be to be intentional about a daily Bible reading plan. Now, I don't want to just exhort you to do something without telling you how one way you can do it. I'll show you the way I do it. Um, I got involved with a thing called the Life Journal uh, when I was a pastor back in Yakima, Washington, around 2003, 2004, somewhere in there. And I've been following this plan ever since then. It's, It's a reading through the Old Testament once, the New Testament twice each year. So over time, that begins to build up and your understanding of the Bible begins to grow. If you went to that website, that's what you'd see. I'm not telling you you have to do that one, but it is a good one. And if you don't have a plan or any thought, you can go there and read about it and come up with a daily scheduled Bible reading plan. Because if you do that, you'll read these texts that somehow get missed, that we don't pay attention to. A lot of these ones we've been seeing in this series. So I want to encourage you to do that. And in that context, I want to direct you today to Psalm 60. Now, most of you probably don't have any working knowledge of Psalm 60. You haven't spent time there. There's always uh, some who, for whatever reason, got connected to one psalm or another. But this is probably one that you haven't particularly noticed. And we probably would never use it as our text for the day, except It has a banner in it, and as you go and look at it, it's a powerful psalm that speaks to us. So I want us to go to Psalm 60 today, and we're going to read, and I want to start from verse one here, and let me just read you the first four verses. It says, you have rejected us, O God, and burst upon us. You have been angry, now restore us. You have shaken the land and torn it open, mend its fractures, for it is quaking. You have shown your people desperate times. You have given us wine that makes us stagger. But for those who fear you, you have raised a banner to be unfurled against the bow. So there's the banner. That's our connection to this story. And as we read this first few verses, you kind of get a general sense of, uh, of a time of, of despair and struggle and trial. Now, as you read it, you might be thinking of any number of things that could have created this scenario in the land. And in fact, if you look at verse 2, it's the language of an earthquake. It talks about the ground is quaked and it's torn apart. But this particular psalm, as much as it's applicable in a wider sense is actually written in a very specific context. And that specific context is warfare. Now, we live in a time of relative security, particularly security compared to the times of the Bible. And there's something we don't think about all the time, and that is this. The fact that our lives are generally secure sometimes makes it harder for us to understand the Bible. Did you ever think about that? That there are some things in the Bible that's hard for us to understand because most of us have never lived in a setting where there was constant warfare and danger that an army was going to come from Altamont Springs and catch us off guard and kill all of us in the middle of our service. We don't live like that, do we? But there were times like that in the Bible. And to understand that context sometimes can give us a better understanding of what the word is saying to us. Now, why do I say that the context of this psalm is warfare? Well, you will see as we go on through the psalm in the last half, the language is definitely a warfare language. But there's another thing about this psalm that tells us what it is, and it's called the superscription. Now, I don't know if you've ever noticed this in the Psalms, but there's a very interesting reality in the Psalms. And that is some of the Psalms come with words before you actually get to the Psalm itself. Now, this makes plenty of sense because the Psalms to us appear as words, but in their original context, these were Psalms. And there is often words put at the beginning to say who wrote it or, or what it was. And I just want to give you an example of superscriptions. Grab that Bible that's in front of you, the blue one right there in front of you, and turn to Psalm 3. And let me just show you what some of these superscriptions will tell you. So Psalm chapter 3, you can see where it begins in verse 1 there, O oh Lord, how many are my foes? But above that, do you see that smaller print It says, a psalm of David when he fled from his son Absalom. It puts the psalm in context. Psalm four, for the director of music with stringed instruments, a psalm of David. So this psalm actually tells you how to sing it. You're supposed to do it with stringed instruments. Psalm five, for the director of music, for flutes do this one with flutes. That's a Psalm of David as well. Then six for the director of music with stringed instruments, according to Sheminith, a Psalm of David. Now there's these different terms that show up in these superscripts, but people aren't even actually sure exactly what they meant. They may have been some sort of a musical indication. You go on, verse 7, a -a shagion of David. That may be a type of poem, we don't know. Which he sang to the Lord considering Cush, a Benjamite. Have you ever read these superscriptions before you read the psalm? Because they can give some interesting context. Psalm 8, for the director of music, according to Gittith, a psalm of David. Psalm 9, for the director of music, to the tune of the death of the Son a Psalm of David. You all remember that tune, right? The death of a son. Well, I don't know. We don't know it, but they knew what that meant. And it gave context to these words. Why do I bring that up? Well, the reason I bring that up is because Psalm 60 has one of the longest superscripts of any Psalm in the Bible. And in it, we realize the context of this psalm. So I want to read it to you. Psalm 60, the superscript. So I can't really put it up as a text with numbers, but here it is. It says, For the director of music, to the tune of the lily of the covenant. I wonder what that tune was like. A miktam of David. That's a term we don't know either. For teaching, when he fought Aram Naharaim and Aram Zobah, and when Joab returned, And struck down 12,000 Edomites in the Valley of Salt. Now, a little background on these superscripts. Where did they come from? Well, it's unlikely that whoever wrote the psalm actually wrote the superscript as well. Likely that got put on there later. Just like if you took out a hymn book and you opened it up, you'd have the song, but you'd also have some things at the top. And on the left, it usually tells you who wrote the the poem. On the right, it usually tells you the tune or, or how it was written. Sometimes you'll have notes about it at the bottom. Well, that's what these are. They're descriptions. And they've been associated with these psalms since at least 200 years before Jesus was born. And in fact, probably longer than that. Because even at that time, they had already lost the meaning of some of the tunes and the meaning of some of the terms. Even by the day of Jesus. So these are very ancient descriptions that go with these psalms. Now, I told you that this psalm deals with warfare. We learn a lot in this superscript. First of all, it's to the director of the music. It's to the tune of the lily of the covenant. It's a miktam. We're not really sure what that is. That may be a musical term. It may be a kind of poem. It was written, or at least is attributed to David. And then there's another interesting point. This psalm is for teaching. So after you've read this psalm, you're supposed to have learned something. So I hope by the time we're done, we have, because that's what it's for. And then it gives context. When David fought against Aram Naharim and Aram Zobah, and when Joab returned and struck down 12,000 Edomites in the Valley of Saul. Aram Naharim is a region that's mentioned in the Bible several times before you get to this psalm. The first time we get mention of it is in the book of Genesis when Abraham has called his servant in and he wants his servant to get a wife for his son Isaac. And he says, I want you to leave here. Don't get a wife for him from the Canaanites. Go back to where I came from and find someone. Ultimately, he'll find Rebekah. Find someone to... To be the wife of my son from among my people. And then it says later on in that chapter, it says in verse 10, that the servant got up and went to the region of Aram Naharaim, And that's where he will find Rebekah. Now I want to show you a map real quick here so you have some context of what we're talking about, and it's not a great map, so I apologize for that, but if you look at that tiny little thing down in the right-hand corner, that gives you the region. That's the Middle East region. That's Turkey up there on the left, and Iran, modern-day Iran is over there, and you see that extra green area. That's Mesopotamia. That's the area where Babylon was. Now, there's a red box there. That red box is around the region called Aram Naharaim, And the bigger map is a blow up of that area. And you can see on that map the Euphrates River coming down around this way. And the Tigris River across the top. This is northwestern Mesopotamia. That is Aram Naharaim. Now also mentioned here is Aram Zobah. There's another map that shows us Aram Zobah. And as the city of Zobah is in that light pink area up at the top. Aram Naharaim was across the Euphrates River. Aram Zobah was the area on this side of the Euphrates River. Ultimately, David's kingdom would come to control all the way up to the border of Aram Naharaim, But it wouldn't happen easily. We have this particular reference of this region. There's another interesting reference to Aram Naharaim that's in the book of Deuteronomy. That's where Balaam, the son of Beor, comes from. Do you remember the story of Balaam? When Israel was coming out of Egypt and they came up against the Moabites and they didn't want Israel to come through the land so they sent for the prophet Balaam and he's the one that talked to his donkey and he came down. He was from Aram Naharaim. There's another mention in the Judges where Othniel, the younger brother of Caleb, goes to war against the king of Aram Naharaim. So this was a real place. And there were enemies of the people of God there. Now when you go to the book of Chronicles, you will find a story where David fights against the king of Aram Naharain and the king of Zobah. Now it mentions the story and it mentions that David wins. But it doesn't mention anything about the nature of the struggle. You get the idea from the story that, well, he just kind of won that. But you know, sometimes all the details aren't included in the struggle, are they? It's a little bit like saying uh, there was slavery in the United States once and then there was a civil war and after the Civil War was over, they outlawed slavery, and that was that. Okay, that's true, but we kind of left out some detail there, didn't we? We kind of left out some experience there, didn't we? And it seems that the biblical telling of this story leaves out some detail. And that detail, you can find here, the experience on the inside, In Psalm chapter 60. So I want to go back and I want to read you Psalm 60, the first five verses. This is what it was like during that war. You have rejected us, God, and burst upon us. You have been angry, now restore us. You have shaken the land and torn it open. Mend its fractures, for it is quaking. You have shown your people desperate times. You have given us wine that makes us stagger. But for those who fear you, you have raised a banner to be unfurled against the bow. Save us and help us with your right hand that those you love may be delivered. So this is the cry of the people. You hear the voice of the people crying out. Now listen to God's answer. It starts in the next verse. Verse six. God has spoken from his sanctuary. I will triumph, uh, in triumph, I will parcel out, now I want you to notice the names here. I will parcel out Shechem and measure off the valley of Sukkoth. Verse 7, Gilead is mine and Manasseh is mine. Ephraim is my helmet. Judah is my scepter. This is God's answer. Now let me tell you what that answer means. This answer of God is nothing short of God reaffirming his promises to Abraham. Abraham came into the land. He came into the land a stranger. And Jacob's family lived in the land as strangers. This text specifically mentions Shechem. Shechem was one of the first places in the land where Jacob and his family lived as strangers. And God says, I will give you that. Sukkoth was a place where Jacob and his family camped when they were traveling to the land. And God says, that's yours. Gilead was a portion of the land that was given to the tribe of Manasseh and Gad. And then he says something very interesting, where he's mirroring the language of Jacob himself. He says, Manasseh is mine, Ephraim is my helmet. When Jacob was old and dying, Joseph brought his two sons to his father Jacob. And his father Jacob blessed his sons. It's an interesting story. He literally crossed his hands because he gave the younger one the greater blessing than the older one. And he blesses the sons of Joseph and said, Manasseh and Ephraim are mine. In doing so, Jacob claimed the sons of Joseph as his own. That's why Manasseh and Ephraim are tribes up here just like the others who are literally the sons of Jacob. Because Jacob said, they're mine. Now what is God saying in this psalm? He's saying the exact same thing Jacob did. Ephraim and Manasseh are mine. This psalm is nothing short of a reaffirmation of the promise of God. And a confirmation of his words to the patriarchs. And then that thing about Judah is my scepter. The last thing Jacob ever said to his son Judah or the last recorded was the scepter shall not depart from Judah until Shiloh comes. This psalm is an affirmation of the promise of God. So that's the first part of his answer. Now here's the second part of his answer and this makes us uncomfortable a little bit. Verse 8. And this is because we don't live in war zones. Moab is my washbasin. On Edom I toss my sandal. Over Philistia, I shout in triumph. Okay, we hear that and we think, ah, sounds like favoritism. Okay, let me put it in context to you. God promised the people the land because he was gonna do a work and bring Jesus Christ to that land. These nations stood against God's plan. What happens to any people, any nation, any church that stands against God's plan? It doesn't last. God overthrows it. And God is continuing to affirm his, pro- his promise. These people in the land will be taken out of your way. He goes on. Now this is the reply of the people. Verse 9. Who will bring me to the fortified city? Who will lead me to Edom? Is it not you, God, you who have now rejected us and no longer go out with our armies? Give us aid against the enemy, for human help is worthless With God we will gain the victory, and he will trample down our enemies. I want you to understand what this psalm is teaching, because it is a psalm of teaching. It begins with the people recognizing their situation. The middle is God's answer that he affirms he will in fact keep his promise to Abraham. And the last is the people remembering we have no chance alone, but with God on our side, we can't be defeated. That's the core message of this psalm. And we hear the heart of it in verses 3 through 5. I'll read those to you again. You have shown your people desperate times. You have given us wine that makes us stagger. But for those who fear you, you have raised a banner to be unfurled against the bow. Save us. And help us with your right hand that those you love may be delivered. So this whole series has been called Banner Year. And it's about the banners that God has raised for his people. And this psalm mentions a banner of deliverance that will come. But it isn't much of a stretch to go from this to a passage from the words of Jesus in John chapter 12. And we find these words where Jesus says, And I, if I be lifted up, Sorry, Alyssa. And I, if I be lifted up, I will draw all men to myself. Jesus is our banner of deliverance. Now, but I want you to notice one more thing, and we're going to close with this. Psalm 60, verse 5. Notice these words. It says, save us and help us with your right hand that those you love may be delivered. You know what God's answer to this is? John three sixteen. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever believeth in him should not perish but have everlasting life. The cry of the people, save us because you love us. God's answer, because I love you. I've sent you, Jesus. This is a psalm of teaching. The lesson to learn is that God will keep His promise. We will go through hard times, but God will keep His promise and He will deliver His people. All that stand under the banner of Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Father in heaven, We pray that we will believe these words and that we will be the people who stand under the banner of Jesus. It is warfare here, whether we recognize it or not, but you have promised deliverance. Help us to believe your word. May it take residence in our hearts and may we have hope and courage in Jesus. In his name we pray, amen.